Thanks, Steve. So we're, um, we are nearing the end of our time in the Apostles' Creed, and um, if you're just joining us this morning, we've been, uh, uh, we've been utilizing the Apostles' Creed as, uh, uh, we're not expositing it necessarily, we're kind of allowing it to, uh, to lay for us the roadmap. We've gone back to God's Word and said, okay, what does this mean? And, um, and so over the last couple of months, we've talked about who God is, um, we've talked about his nature. We've talked about who Jesus is. And now we're at this end section of the creed. And you'll notice it, um, it comes uh, quite quickly at this point. Uh, we we uh, confessed a couple of weeks ago, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. And then last week, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And then this morning, we get this four words, the forgiveness of sins. And then right into the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So sandwiched in all of this is what you and I in, in, the, uh, in the church in the 21st century think is clearly the most important idea, right? That is that we have forgiveness of our sins, and yet the creed places it somewhere near the bottom, and it comes to us almost, I mean, when you read the creed, it, it almost feels like an afterthought. And, um, and it is a, a, a somewhat later insertion into the creed, but it is critically important for us, almost deceptively so. And so we want to ask this morning, what, what does it mean to confess the forgiveness of sins? So we're going to talk about it under two parts. What is sin and what is forgiveness? So this week... Deceptively simple, right? Remember what I said uh, early on about uh, about preaching through the creed, and that was uh, somebody said, "How in the world are you going to squeeze twelve sermons out of the Apostles' Creed?" We could squeeze about twenty-four sermons out of the forgiveness of sins. That's how deep uh, the water is here, um, and and I'm going to try to do it in about twenty-four minutes. So. Uh, but I was thinking, so I'm, I'm looking at it this week, and I, I'm really wrestling with, okay, how am I going to describe sin to a room full of people that have heard it for so long, time and time and time again, right? And, um, and, then, and then I got a text message from Kurt, and it said, hey, are you going to be in town this week? I'm coming through on Sunday. And are you, are you preaching? And I said, I am. And he said, good, I'll see you Sunday. And my mind started spinning. Um, and it started spinning to a place that I never even went but, but heard a lot about. And that is Bay St. Louis and a place called Lanyap Presbyterian Church. I think you all at some point sent a team down to uh, Bay St. Louis after Katrina. Is that true? Yeah? Maybe? I think you did. I wasn't here back then, but I, I'm pretty sure you did. And um, and so there's a story that is a really uh, that comes out of that period in uh, in Atlantiap, and um, it's a story about a chicken truck. And so uh, the the way that the the story kind of un- unfolded was that they were uh, they were up and running. They were bringing teams in to come down after Katrina, and uh, and um, 
Kurt was there, and then there was another guy named Jean LaRue, and they were seeking to establish a church in that area, kind of after the wreckage of Katrina in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. They were, they were striving, working to, to set up and establish a church. And so they didn't have any property yet. They were, they were you know, renting space or borrowing space, and, and everything was in flux. And people were coming in and going out, and teams were going down to help out. And uh, in the course of all of that, they received a, um, a, a, actually a very large uh, total of gifts from what I believe was the Morrell Foundation, which is a, is a Mormon organization, and they got just tons of stuff from them. And one of the things that they got was a chicken truck, an 18-wheeler, a, a tractor-trailer loaded with chicken, okay? And, and uh, as Jean LaRue tells a story... Like, it was enough chicken to feed volunteers for years, okay? And so the chicken truck is there, it's on the property, and um, and I, I think, as I remember Jean kind of confessing, he didn't know the first thing about how to keep a refrigerated truck running, okay? And so that chicken truck is in Bay St. Louis. You know what the Gulf Coast is right is like, right? Hot, steamy, all right? And that chicken truck is out there sitting, and... Um, and at some point, somebody walks by the truck and notices that from under the doors is oozing juice. And so they reported it and they went and, and, and sure enough, the truck was running, but the refrigerator portion was broken. And so there was an 18-wheeler loaded with chicken breaded chicken i think there was bologna was mentioned there was there was chicken fajita meat in the middle of it from chilies all of it frozen waiting waiting just to be utilized and now it it was rotting and so they they got on the phone and they called i think it was sanderson farms they called and said hey look we've got one of your chicken trucks down here and uh and they said, great, you know, uh, is it empty? We'll come get it. And they said, no, it's not, it's not exactly empty. Um, it's full of rotting chicken. And they said, refreeze it. And then, no, serve it. No, no. <laughs> but they told them to refreeze, the, which is a really kind of a brilliant idea, right? I mean, you've got to get rid of that. And at this point, it was just syrup, uh, syrupy chicken inside there. You can imagine. And, and John says, you know, they gave a lot of bad jobs to groups that came down there, but this was one that they couldn't give away. And so he tells the story of opening the back of the truck, even after that chicken had been refrozen, and the staff going through the truck, throwing out rotten chicken. You can imagine, right? And, and John kind of recounts, and he says, you know, as I was there and I'm pulling that smelly, nasty chicken and we're throwing it away in the dumpster, I realized this is my heart. This is what my heart is like. It is like a truckload of rotting chicken. Now, when you hear the word sin, I don't know, is a rotting chicken truck what comes to, comes to mind? <laughs> Probably not. And you know the reason that it doesn't come to mind? It's because we don't have a strong enough idea. We don't, we don't have a conception of what our sin is really like. 
and not just our sin, we're going to have a conception of what our hearts are really like. See, typically what we do is we take sin and we kind of carve it out and say, sin is this thing that we do. Okay, so we lie a little, we, we might cheat here or there on our taxes or some, you know, it's the federal government, it's no big deal. Um, we kind of have this cleaned up version of sin that, that we give out, all right? It's, you know, don't dance, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't date girls who do, okay? That's, that is kind of our version of what sin is. It's this, it, it's, it, it's bad, it's not that bad. I'm bad. I'm not chicken truck rotting in Bay St. Louis heat bad. And that is where we start to go wrong. Our idea, our understanding of sin and, and a sinful heart is neutered. It's not big enough. See, in the Old Testament, the, the word that is most frequently translated as sin is the word kata. And, and that idea of kata in the Old Testament is to fail or to miss the goal. Proverbs 19.2 says, Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet, katas. That is, whoever makes haste with his feet, whoever doesn't consider and just goes headlong into something, they miss the way, they miss the goal, they, they don't hit the destination. That's the idea. In the Old Testament, sin is a failure, or it's a failure to fulfill a goal, to make the right path, to, to land at the spot we want to land at. In the New Testament, it's harmatia, and that idea is to miss the mark. And so, we take this kind of understanding of, the, of what the Old Testament gives to us, and we learn and uh, in, in thinking about that and then putting it together with some other things, right? Things like the fact that we were created in the image of God to love God and to love each other. And so we're made in His image, and we learn through uh, kind of the, the beginning of creation that we are to love each other. Every person that we encounter in this world is worthy of our respect and our love because they're made in the image of God. Um, you'll recall we, we talked some time ago that C.S. Lewis uh, talks about that idea that every person you meet has a soul that will last forever. Right? That's the way that God created us, made in the image of God. And so sin, okay, this idea of kata comes along, and that sin that has invaded us is a failure to love God, and it's also a failure in our lives to love others. All sin is ultimately a sin against God. Some sin involves sin against others. And so when we look at the moral code, as the moral code now comes to Moses, okay, it's broken down into two parts, our duty to God and our duty to man. So half of it describes what it looks like to fail to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and half of it marks out what it looks like to not love your neighbor with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the two of those are connected. 
This is why when, when David engages in sin with Bathsheba and then has her husband killed, okay, as he writes Psalm 51, what does he say? He says, my sin is against you and you only have I sinned, okay? Speaking to God, what, did he sin against Bathsheba and Uriah? Absolutely, but in the larger picture, it was sin against God. And so all of our sin is sin against God. Some of it is sin against people. But it's, it's deeper than that, even. It's more than just doing bad things. It's being bad people. It's having hearts that are corrupted. It's being self-deceived. This is why the Apostle Paul says that we are slaves to sin in Romans 6.6. Or in Romans 7, he says that sin lives in us. So it's a failure to miss the mark, right? It's a failure to, to land at the right place. That is what sin is. But sin is also a condition. It's a condition of our hearts. And it's there because our first parents sinned in the garden and we receive their sin nature at birth. That's what the Bible teaches. And so it's why Paul can say in, in Romans chapter 3 that all, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good. And we have all turned away. You see, it's, it isn't just what we do, it's who we are. We do the things we do because of the heart that we have that is within us. The Bible says it this way, The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it. Jeremiah 17.9 or Genesis 6.5, right? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen to that again. The wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's rotten, chicken, heart, bad. Okay? That's what that sounds like when the thoughts of our hearts are evil. When the thoughts of our hearts aren't good and they aren't pure. You see, it isn't just what you do. It's the condition of your heart and who you are. Listen, this is why, this is why you can be a really good person and still be separated from God. This is why Jesus goes to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 and he looks at them and he says, Woe to you, okay, strongest words that Jesus can use. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, just stop right there. You hear, you and I hear teachers of the law and Pharisees and we go, those are bad people. Right? We've taken Pharisees and we, 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 we chain them up and just we dog cuss them. They are terrible people. Friends, they were not 
necessarily bad folks. These were good people who did good things. Who, who you know, right? As I've said before, you know, this, these are good neighbors. They keep their lawn cut. The leaves are picked up. They they get the trash can down from the street as soon as the trash truck comes by. Right? They bring you soup when you're sick. They, they look after all of your needs. They watch your dog for free. They, they're, they're good folks. They followed the law to the T. And Jesus looks at them and says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You are hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, what? You are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You see, it's possible for us to be good church people and to have hearts that are far from God. It's not just possible. It's entirely likely. We are, we are that good at self-deception. And not just fooling ourselves, but fooling other people around us. That is the nature of sin. Of self-deception. Here's the reality. We are all... The beginning place for all of us is that heart. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And the reality is that the Bible tells us that the penalty for our sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from God. And in real life, the way this plays out is separation from God and your sin will eventually drive you away from people. And so your relationships will be a wreck everywhere. But sometimes you'll hold it all together and everybody will say, he's such a great guy, she's such a sweet lady, and inside are dead bones. A chicken truck. That isn't cooled. So what's the solution? If it's that bad, what's the solution? The solution is the forgiveness that comes from God. Listen to the way that David describes it in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. He goes on, verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah chapter 7, 18 and 19. Who is like you? Who, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. 
you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. The picture in the Bible is forgiveness. Forgiveness is when God doesn't hold our sin against us. It is receiving a pardon for something that you are very guilty of. That is the picture of forgiveness in the Bible. And and the the confession just says that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. It it doesn't go into the sort of depth, really, that, that we need in order to understand what exactly is that. Because you don't just forgive and forget. Remember, we've talked about this idea before. When someone sins against you, and somebody does something against you, and you forgive them, remember, there's always a cost associated with that forgiveness. If somebody were to run into your car, okay, and they, they dented it up pretty badly, and you said, you know, let's just, let's just call it good, just go on your way, I forgive you. Do you still have a dent in your car? Does it still need to be repaired? Yes. Are you going to eat the cost of that repair? Yes. And that's what happens when we extend forgiveness. In a relationship, you extend forgiveness, you eat the pain associated with the wrong that was done to you. In the Bible, God is the one who absorbs that. He is the one that takes that upon Himself. And He does it by sending Jesus to make satisfaction for us. And that's the first idea associated with the idea of forgiveness. And that is that somehow, somehow satisfaction has to be made for our sin. That is, there's a debt that's owed and that debt has to be paid. So somewhere, somehow, the debt has to be taken care of. And that, of course, is where Jesus comes in. And so typically the way that we say this, right, is we say that Jesus died for my sin. And that's absolutely true. He did die for your sin. But in doing so, there's, there's more here below the surface, right? At the core of it, Jesus died and by His blood... He satisfied the justice of God, and then He turned away in that process. He turns away the wrath of God from us. I've tried to give you one of those, you know, $100 words every week. The word that we use for the turning away of the wrath of God is the word propitiation. In that work that Jesus did, He turns away the wrath of God from us, and He pours it out on His Son. See, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God in your place and my place in order that we can experience the forgiveness of God. Forgiveness is not free. The cost is extraordinarily high. And and it comes at the price of of Jesus' life. And so that's, that is the idea. 
Jesus died, and by his blood, he satisfies the justice of God, and he turns away the wrath of God. Listen to Paul in Romans 3, verse 24. He says, And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So Jesus' blood turns away the wrath of God so that he takes it and you don't. And that act is the core of God's forgiveness that is expressed to us when we trust Jesus by faith. Here's the problem. The problem is getting to the point where you can confess that your heart is a truckload of warm chicken, rotting in the sun for days. The problem is we have to make that confession in order to experience that forgiveness. Forgiveness. 